From Genesis 3 onward, the Bible tells us the story of God working out His plan to reverse the effects of our sinful rebellion. God is reversing everything that has gone wrong. He's overcoming the corrupting effects of sin and making all things new. The Bible opens with the words, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and it essentially concludes with Jesus' declaration, Behold, I am making all things new. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He was active at creation, and He is active in the new creation. And today, that's what we are going to focus on. How the story ends. We've been doing the year of the Bible this year. We started in January with creation in Genesis 1. And we conclude today with the new creation found in Revelation primarily, but in other places as well. And really, it's the only part of the story that has yet to happen. And it's important for us to consider how the story ends because it can encourage us and help us to stay focused on the mission Because God has not finished working. Everything God has promised and planned will come to completion. Now, unfortunately, a lot of Christians avoid talking about the end of history, mainly because there are so many different theological camps that have kind of sprung up around different interpretations of the timeline of Jesus' second coming. And end-time studies, I'll give you, they're notoriously difficult and can be very confusing and intimidating. And and we could really probably spend weeks just discussing the various interpretations and views of how and when Jesus will return. Will there or will there not be a rapture? What about the tribulation? Will it come before the rapture or after the rapture? Or will the rapture come halfway through the tribulation? And what about the mark of the beast? And who will the Antichrist be? And what about the thousand-year reign? Are you a premillennial, a postmillennial, an amillennial? Is your head spinning yet? And as interesting as these discussions can be, all too often they just sort of muddy the waters and I think they miss the point. Jesus taught a great deal about the end of time, but never to confuse us, never to scare us, but only ever to encourage us and to comfort us and to challenge us. The truth of Christ's return has tremendous implications for how we live our lives today, not just what will happen someday. So rather than focus on the when, where, and how of Jesus' return, this morning I want us to focus on what we're supposed to do now as we await His arrival. What difference should that make in our lives? What kinds of people should we be in light of the fact that Jesus will someday return? John wrote the book of Revelation largely to encourage believers to stay faithful in the midst of seemingly hopeless circumstances. I mean, John himself, when he wrote this, was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. He was, he was a prisoner. And from his perspective, it looked like the godless pagan Roman Empire had won. And so God allowed John to sort of peek behind the curtain and see the world as God sees it. That's what revelation or the word apocalypse means. We hear the word apocalypse. We think destruction, doom. That word means unveiling, pulling back the curtain and letting us see 
what's behind. So I want to encourage you as we get to the end of our reading, and I hope and pray that you guys have stuck with us all year long. If not, just pick it up and start today and finish off the year with us. But I encourage you to read Revelation. Don't be discouraged because it can be confusing. Our culture is very different from the culture that John was writing to. And, and even in that culture, what he wrote was confusing because he intentionally used codes and mysterious imagery, hallmarks of what was called first century apocalyptic literature. But I want you to read it prayerfully. Read it patiently. But Revelation, as I said, isn't the only place in the Bible where we can read about the second coming of Christ and what it means for us. Jesus talked about it in Matthew 24. We could look at that. It's mentioned several times in the Old Testament. And in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, which we just read recently, talk at detail at great lengths about the Christ's return. But this morning, I want us to look at 2 Peter 3. So if you turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Peter chapter 3, I want to allow this to challenge us and living for Jesus as we look for His coming. We should await His arrival actively, thoughtfully, and prayerfully, and lovingly. Listen to what Peter says. Let's just look at the first two verses. He says, Dear friends, this is how my second letter to you. This is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past, by the holy prophets, and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. So Peter tells us here his purpose in writing this letter is to encourage wholesome thinking. Now that word wholesome means sincere and uncontaminated. He, he wants their thinking to be sincere and true and uncontaminated by any false teaching. Now earlier in this letter, Peter addresses these false teachers, and I'll mention them again later here in chapter 3. There were false teachers in that day, and certainly today when it comes to the return of Jesus, there are a lot of false teachings out there floating around. I mean, how many times have you ever read a headline or heard somebody predict that the end of the world is going to happen this December? You know, or hey, we're going to have a fourth blood moon, and that's it, that's the end of time. I mean, we hear these people that come out with these prophecies and these predictions, or maybe people who, who claim they know who the Antichrist will be, and it's usually some political or world figure that they disagree with. You know, that's who the Antichrist is going to be. Peter, right from the bat here, is telling us to avoid that kind of thinking. Avoid that sort of worrying and debating. He's saying that when it comes to Christ's return, we should recall what God's Word has already said. There is no new revelation God's not out there whispering in some other person's ear today, giving him something that's not in the Bible. The Bible is true and it is relevant today as it was when it was written. And there is no new revelation outside of Scripture. John goes so far to say at the end of Revelation, he said, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this scroll. So all that we need to know, all that God wants us to know about the return of Christ is in this book. And Peter emphasizes in verse 2 that the most important thing we need to know is what he calls the command given by our Lord and Savior. Now, 
The question is, what command is he talking about? Jesus gave lots of commands. There's the greatest command and the one that is like it, to love God with all that we are, to love our neighbor as ourselves. There's the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations. Is that what he's referring to? Or is it what Jesus called the new commandment that he gave us, that we should love one another the way that Christ has loved us? Well, whichever one it is, I think that Peter clearly is telling us when it comes to thinking and talking about Christ's return, love should be our foundation. And the great commission should be our motivation. And so Peter then outlines for us three things we need to keep in mind as we await Jesus' arrival. And the first he gives us are some people to beware. Some people to beware. Look with me at verse 3. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. Scoffing and following their own evil desires, they will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So the first group of people he tells us to beware are those who ridicule. Those who ridicule. He calls them scoffers. And when Peter says, in the last days, scoffers will come, he's referring to the period between Advents, between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. In other words, he's talking about our day. Scoffers. And do we have scoffers today? You better believe it. You want to see some scoffers, just go online, find a news article, and spend some time in the comments section. Actually, please don't do that. It's a terrible experience. But if anybody ever brings up God or mentions Scripture and that, it's unreal the hate that is spewed out in those comments from people who claim to be atheists or who at least don't share our biblical worldview. Well, people in Peter's day were no different. They followed false teachers. They had people that ridiculed their beliefs, especially when it came to the second coming of Christ. And people today are just as skeptical. Of course, all those crazy false prophecies we mentioned earlier don't help things. But people are skeptical today. And we need to be aware of their scoffing, their ridicule. We don't need to get into arguments with them about it, especially about the details that, let's be honest, we really don't know. The second group Peter mentions are those who follow evil. They're at the end of verse 3. Peter says that those who reject the spiritual, those who claim not to believe in God, who stand opposed to His principles, do so from a place of deep brokenness. Listen, they're lost. Those people on Facebook spouting all that hate, they're lost. They're spiritually dead. And lots of times those seemingly logical arguments are little more than smoke screens for their fears and their hurt and their insecurities and their evil desires. And that's what Peter calls them out on right here. He says that their scoffing is purely so they can follow their evil desires. Peter describes them as as cynics. I mean, look in verse 4 at the arguments they make. Basically, they say, Jesus hasn't come back yet, so where is He? Nothing's changed since the beginning of the world. Our fathers have died. They were waiting for Jesus. Where was He? 
And we face similar arguments from people today. They say, well, it's been 2,000 years. He hasn't come yet. Is he ever going to come? Peter tells us to beware of those who are seeking evil. And finally, he says that we should beware of those who would deliberately forget God. Now, these people here, he says they've deliberately chosen to forget. Maybe these are people today who know the Bible. They can speak intelligently to it. Maybe they grew up in church. Maybe they even went to seminary or even went into the ministry. But now they have chosen to ignore what God's Word says. They're willfully blind to His work in the past, such as His work in creation and His work in bringing judgment through the flood. Yet their scoffing and their willful unbelief, can it ever overcome the awesome power of God's divine Word? No. Because God's divine Word is what called the universe into being. God's divine Word is what released the waters of the flood in judgment. And God's divine Word is the same that will someday call forth a final cleansing when Christ returns. See, people with these kinds of attitudes, they're the ones the Bible encourages us to beware of. But the Bible also commands us to love them and to pray for them and to faithfully share the gospel with them. We already mentioned that Peter has brought up this command from our Lord and Savior, which I do believe is that command that we are to love others as we love ourselves. We are to love others as Jesus Christ has loved us. And so next, Peter moves on to give us some truths to remember, and love for others is the underlying truth of them all. Look at these truths to remember. Look at verse 8. He says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth, and everything in it laid bare. The first truth that we need to remember is the truth of God's timing. He talks about that in verses 8 and 9. Now, time is such a strange concept, isn't it? You know, we have this saying that a watch pot never boils. Okay, so it's like when you're waiting for Christmas to come. As a little kid, it feels like it's never going to get here. Of course, when you're mom and dad, it gets here all too quick, doesn't it? When you're in a waiting room at the doctor's office, When you're in the checkout line at Walmart, time seems to just stop. And then we have another saying, time flies when you're having fun. Or when you've got a deadline for a paper that you've procrastinated on, you know. So so when, when when we're up against the deadline at work or school or when you're on vacation, you know, it's amazing that you go on a week of vacation and like that you're back home. And it's like, what happened? Did we even go? If you didn't have pictures, you wouldn't have proof. It went by so fast. Our our perspective on time is subjective, isn't it? Well, God has a very different perspective on time. He stands above time. To God, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. In other words, from an eternal perspective, time is essentially meaningless. It's meaningless. What might appear like a delay in God's fulfilling the promise of the second coming is really just a difference in our perspective on time from His perspective on time. 
But then Peter goes on to relate this perspective on God's timing to God's patience. You have to remember that God is patient. Not only does He have a different perspective on time, He is infinitely more patient than we are. Because God, He's got this incredible love for people. He desires that no one perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. And therefore, God's apparent delay, it's not because He's unable to fulfill His promise. It's not because He's indifferent toward us. No, He's delaying that return solely because of His grace. We know that God wants everyone to be saved. We know that God has made sufficient provision for everyone to be saved. But we also know that some will exercise their God-given free will to refuse that grace. But that doesn't stop God from extending every possible opportunity, even delaying the return of Christ. And it's why Jesus issued the Great Commission, because God's heart has always been for the nations of the world to hear the good news and to turn to Him as their true King. Matthew 24, 14, Jesus said, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus Christ desires that all nations hear the good news about His saving grace before His return. Revelation, as we heard earlier, we heard from Isaiah And then we heard from Revelation in our Old New Testament reading. And I hope that you noticed how similar both of those were. Revelation echoes the Old Testament prophets who often talked about the nations coming to the New Jerusalem to worship God, to be ruled by the Lord as the true King of creation. On and later in that same chapter, Revelation 21, verses 24 through 26, John writes, "...the nations will walk by its light." And the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it, meaning the new Jerusalem. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. As citizens of the heavenly kingdom, we must extend God's love and grace and carry this gospel to the nations, even to those difficult people who oppose God and His Word. Because who knows, but that you might become that human instrument by which they are brought to faith in Jesus Christ. We must remember the truth of God's timing, God's patience, and finally, God's judgment. In verse 10, He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now that phrase, the day of the Lord, is the most often description for the return of Christ in the Old Testament. And really the the biblical story from the very beginning paints a picture of God's good world marred by human sin and the suffering it brings as headed towards destruction. God's good world, marred by sin, is headed for destruction. And this trajectory towards ultimate destruction is revealed at several key points. We see it in the flood in Genesis chapter 6. We see it in the plagues of Egypt in the book of Exodus. We see it in the exile from the promised land. We see it in the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the temple. And someday, God will finally come down to deal with human sin and evil and suffering once and for all. Evil will be judged. 
the wicked will be banished. And all things will be restored. And the world will once again be a place of justice and peace and wholeness and love. That day is the day of the Lord. And despite all the warnings in the Old Testament, people did not, and people still do not, believe that this day is coming. And so, they're not prepared for the day of the Lord. Which is why Jesus and Paul and here Peter all describe His arrival as being as unexpected as a thief in the night. All three reference that expression. Though predicted in Scripture, the return of Christ will come unexpectedly. Now, Peter uses some stark yet strangely ambiguous language here to describe how everything in the created universe will be judged on that day. And scholars have debated for centuries exactly what Peter means here. But I'm going to give you my thoughts on what he's describing. And I think the key lies in the word at the end of verse 10 that's translated by the NIV as laid bare. The literal Greek meaning is the word found. So a literal translation would say, and the earth and everything in it will be found. What does that mean? Well, it's a legal term that's very similar to the term that we use today when we say that somebody has been found guilty or they have been found innocent. This tells us that the point of the day of the Lord isn't just wanton destruction like some Hollywood end-of-the-world movie, you know, like 2012 or whatever. That's not the point of the day of the Lord. Rather, it's all about God delivering judgment He's rendering his verdict, his judgment on this sinful world. Now, Peter here mentions the heavens. He says the heavens will disappear with a roar. The heavens. He's referring to the cosmos. Billions of galaxies will disappear. Literally, the word is they will pass away with a roar. Now, a common image that's used in the Bible is this idea of the heavens being rolled up like a scroll. Because it's the end of the story. It's the end of the movie. Roll the credits. The scroll has been rolled up. The heavens rolled up like a scroll because it's, it's over. The story's done. The elements, he says, will be destroyed by fire. Again, scholars debate what he means by elements. I think the best view is that Peter is referring to what the people of his day understood as the elements of creation, which were wind and water and fire and earth. Today, if Peter was writing, he would mean the literal elements, right? I mean, we've got a, a periodic table of elements. In other words, it's the basic building blocks of reality. The atomic makeup of everything. Peter's describing that, that through fire, every physical part of the natural world will be destroyed. In verse 7, he says that they are reserved for fire. But to what end? To what purpose? That's where the phrase laid bare comes into play. Sheds light on all of this. Several times the Bible refers to Judgment Day in terms of a purifying fire. In Malachi chapter 3, But who can endure the day of His coming? Who can stand when He appears? For He will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. And then later in Malachi 4.1, Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire. 
So the point that Peter is making is that God will pass all creation through His refining fire to burn away the dross of sin, the stubble of wickedness, every impurity. And as a result, coming through that fire on the other side, the earth and everything in it will be found. The, the world as God created it, the world as God intended it to be when it passes through that fire on the other side. There it is. That's the world that I made. It's now been found. The true creation will come forth from this day new and clean and pure. And so this all brings us to the real question. Not our questions out of curiosity because we want to know the the who, what, when, where, why, but the questions that are meant to provoke us in how we live our lives today. And so Peter ends here, beginning in verse 11. He says, Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? There it is. There's the crux of this chapter. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with His promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you were looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. Our hope in Christ's return should drive us to holy behaviors and godly deeds. Qualities of character consistent with this belief that everything in this world is going to pass away and Jesus is going to come back in judgment and bring about a new earth. So as we await Jesus' arrival, we are to apply ourselves to what Paul calls the working out of our salvation with fear and trembling. See, we are not just passive agents in God's work to, to shape and transform our lives into Christ-likeness. We're not just kind of sitting here just idly waiting for that to happen, we, we must work diligently at becoming spotless, blameless, and at peace with God. We, we have a part in this process. Now that phrase, spotless and blameless, it describes the character of Jesus as seen in the lives of believers. In fact, earlier in, in, in 1 Peter 1.19, Peter uses those same two words to describe Jesus as the spotless and blameless Passover lamb. So he describes Jesus as spotless and blameless, and he tells us that we should be spotless and blameless. Now, Peter isn't saying that we can actually become perfect in this life as Jesus was perfect. But he's saying that Christ's likeness should be the end goal of every believer's life. Being spotless, blameless, and at peace with God, those are the things that we should strive for in our choices, in our priorities, in our speech, and in our behaviors. He says that we should live holy and godly lives. But then he also says that we should live missional lives. In verses 12 and 14, Peter says two times, we should look forward to the day of Christ's arrival. 
As believers, the day of the Lord isn't something to fear, to dread, or to avoid. You know, anytime in, in the TV or the movies, you know, the, the, the apocalypse, the end of time, is always something to be avoided. And the hero of the story has to do something to, to you know, stop the end of time from happening. That's not what the Bible depicts for us. Yes, it will be a dreadful day for those who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but for believers, it is a source of hope and great expectation because after the heavens and the earth pass through that refiner's fire, what is left is nothing short of a renewed heavens and earth, what Peter calls the home of righteousness. Jesus taught us to pray expectantly, Thy kingdom come. For 2,000 years, Christians have been praying, even so come, Lord Jesus. The return of Christ is our hope. It is hope for justice. It is hope for lasting peace. It is hope for the day when death is no more and every tear is wiped away from our eyes. Just as Peter expects us to be actively at work with God's transforming work in us, living holy and godly lives, he also expects us to be actively at work in God's redemptive mission in the world. We should look forward to Jesus' return with a sense of expectation, but also actively cooperating with God in His redemptive mission. That's what Peter means in verse 12 when he says, as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. And that seems like a strange phrase. Speed its coming. In some mysterious way that the Bible doesn't entirely explain and I don't entirely understand the timing of the second advent is linked to the character of Christians' lives. As we shine the light of Jesus out into the darkness of our culture, it somehow impacts the day of the Lord. Now this makes some sense if we remember what Peter already mentioned about God's patience and how it's connected to God's timing. He's waiting for more and more people to be saved. And we are the agents of reconciliation who are going into all the world to make disciples. Not that we can manipulate God. Not that we can force His hand. But God has chosen us to be His partners in His work to save the world. Somehow, that includes the timing of Christ's return. So, we must live missional and godly lives in anticipation of his, of his arrival so that we can point the lost world to Him. Because do you not want as many people as possible to be ready for the return of Jesus? Do you? Well, then we must live missional lives today. And finally, we must live guarded and growing lives. Look with me in verse 16. Paul writes the same way in all his letters, speaking of them in these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. <laughs> Amen. If you're at Romans or Thessalonians, you understand that. Um, which ignorant and unstable people distort. So there were people who were taking Paul's writings, which are already a little hard to understand, and they were distorting them, as they do the other Scriptures, to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard, so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. 
Peter, once again, is referring to those false teachers that are trying to lead his audience astray from their secure position. Now, don't get Peter wrong here. He's not talking about them losing their salvation, but about being led astray from the firm foundation of God's Word. That's their secure position, is that they are building their lives on the firm foundation of Scripture. And so as we await Jesus' arrival, we too must stay grounded in God's Word, guarding our hearts and our minds with the truth of God's Word. Because Satan is at work in this world trying to persuade God's people to leave His truth behind and to embrace the lies of the world. This world is after your children and your grandchildren's hearts and minds to tell them that what you believe and what this book teaches is archaic. And it's out of date. And it's on the wrong side of history. We must be grounded and growing and guarded in this Word against the world's lies. Satan wants us to build our lives and our church on the shifting sands of culture, whatever seems to be the politically correct thing today. But we know from the story what happens when we build our house on shifting sand. Instead, we must build it on the solid rock of God's Word. And the best way to be grounded and guarded is to be actively growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you, that is always our goal here at First Baptist Church. Through our worship, through the preaching, through the teaching in our Sunday school classes, and our Sunday night and Wednesday night small groups, through our youth and our children's ministries. And that's been particularly the goal through our year of the Bible, to help us to read, pray, live, and share God's holy word. I pray that you will continue to guard your heart and your mind and grow in your study of God's Word. I pray that you would be actively involved in worship and fellowship and service to our church. I pray that you would look around this room right now and notice who isn't here and tell them this week, we miss you. Yeah, they might be coming back home from a week away at Thanksgiving, but still it's good to know that you've been missed, isn't it? Let's be about the business of helping God's church and God's kingdom to grow. As the instrumentalists come up, the most important question for us this morning is this. What will the day of the Lord mean for you? Will it mean for you an eternal home of righteousness? Or will it mean for you eternal judgment? You can only await His arrival with joy if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your King. Is Jesus Christ the King on the throne of your heart or is it self and sin? Have you ever come to a place where you were convicted that you were sinful, that you were lost, that you needed the grace of God and that you came to Christ in faith, not faith and trust in your good works or in how much you know about the Bible or whether your name's on a church roll or whether you've gone through the waters of a baptistry or not, but faith and trust in what Jesus Christ did for you on Calvary's cross. Have you ever placed your faith in Him? and ask Jesus Christ to save you and help you to follow Him. If you haven't done that, I pray you would do that this morning. And for those of us who are Christians, Jesus gave us power. He gave us authority. He gives us His presence so we can fulfill His great commission. So when He returns, will He find you obediently worshiping and serving as a fully functional member of His church? Will He find you diligently at work sharing the gospel with other people? 
However God has spoken to you this morning, as we stand and sing, would you come in faith, looking forward to the day of His return.